when you can drive automation beautifully, it, it creates so much white space for you to find other value in other in other sectors of your business, other industries, and helps you have a competitive advantage. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics, and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now, your host, Chris Lukey. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to episode 28. Today, we're talking about innovation in supply chain and so much more. Andrew Johnson is our guest, and he's the CEO of ShelfAware. They are an RFID-based VMI solution that's a perfect example of how digital transformation in manufacturing is not only resulting in new businesses, but creating more opportunities for jobs for the folks in this industry. But there's a lot more that we cover today. So before we get there, here are three things you can expect from today's episode. First, we talk about family business. We talk about Andrew's own journey growing up in his family business, the dynamics of being in such a situation, and some great advice for entrepreneurs balancing work and personal life. Second, we talk about incremental innovation. We kick this off with a sports analogy, but you'll get some great advice and stories on breaking down and achieving big goals during this part of the conversation. Finally, we're going to talk more about shelf-aware. Now, just so you know what I'm saying, shelf-aware is S-H-E-L-F, so that makes sense for like a VMI-style solution, and people have said this show is like a mix of TEDx and how it's made, and this is definitely more emphasis on the latter. You'll get to hear how it works and how you can work with shelf-aware. As always, you can check out every resource, every link mentioned in these episodes over at the show notes page. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 28 for all the things we mention in today's episode. Before we begin, if you are enjoying Manufacturing Happy Hour, please consider leaving a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes, where leaving a review does not need to be more than a couple of sentences, and leaving a rating is just as simple as hitting that five-star button. Again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. Now, let's get into it. Andrew is based outside of Kansas City, Missouri, and if you know this show, you know there's only one right way to start this conversation. So fire up that smoker, crack that beer, and let's dive into today's conversation. Go back to that thought you had. You're not only cracking a beer, you have a growler. Yeah, what, yeah. what do you got today? So I have a growler from a local brewery called Casey Beer Co. Casey uh, Beer Co. Casey Good branding. Beer Co. Yeah, yeah, not bad, you know, straight to the point. So, and inside the growler, I'm sporting a, I, I guess it's an IPL, technically, mm. with the, uh, Indian Pale Lager. It's very it's similar great to style. IPA. Yes. Yeah. Drinks, uh, but you can, you know, for like a hot Missouri or hot Kansas summer, you can drink a few of those and not get quite as exhausted as you would with, uh, with a regular IPA. 
True. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I drink them, you know, is to uh, be able to survive the hot summer. So, and I'm, uh, I'm pouring myself a Lagunitas IPA, pretty standard, true to the West Coast style. So we're, we're keeping it, it regional today. Yep. Local. All right, man. Well, I think we're ready to dive in to the official interview. But first, I, I've got to start off with a casual conversation because you're, based outside of kansas city and i have we have to talk barbecue before we dive in like we all we always talk about beer and drinks on the show a little bit at the start but where's where if we were doing this interview in kansas city where would we be grabbing some barbecue before jumping into the conversation (laughs) man that's a fantastic question so it kind of depends uh when people come to kansas city to see me if it's for business and you want to keep it classy then i go to jack stack fiorellas they have several locations in town but there's one down kind of by the railroad tracks in the freight house district. It's like scenic and historic on top of great barbecue, fantastic kind of uh, black tie, uh, white napkin affair. If you want to get like old school barbecue, which is much more casual, stand in line, shoulder to shoulder with people, that's Oklahoma Joe's. Now I think it's called Mm. Casey's Joe's Barbecue. It's in a gas station, the original location. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd we'd go there. They have some of the best ribs you'll ever have, Kansas City style ribs. And um yeah, those are probably be my top two picks. Got the classy and you got the gas station. Well, being being from across the state in St. Louis, I think KC is still my favorite type of barbecue. Like every genre is so different. Like it's hard to compare sometimes. Like Texas does its own things well, Carolina does its own things well, but I've got a soft spot for from a home state for sure. Awesome. Yeah. It's my fave. And this is the first time I've ever heard about like a white napkin, like fancy barbecue <laughs> restaurant. I'm only used to going to like the gas station style shacks for it. I didn't realize KC had kind of like this almost steakhouse vibe to some of their joints. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jack Stacks is very much a steakhouse. That's a good way to put it. it and they serve steak there too, but they, they have a, a more varied menu, uh, but a strong, strong tradition in Kansas City barbecue. They've been around a long time. And yeah, they've just got it really classy. All their locations are super classy. They're they're great for catering, like business events and stuff. So awesome. Well, I need to check that out the next time I'm in KC. But right now we've got a great conversation ahead of us today. So let me give you a quick intro before we dive in. So for those of you listening out here today, our guest is a supply chain innovator, speaker, and the CEO of ShelfAware. After being raised in and working for his family's industrial business, O-Ring Sales and Services, Shelfware grew out of that company and now provides an RFID-powered solution that gives wireless traceability to a manufacturer's inventory. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Johnson. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm very excited to talk to your audience and to manufacturing leaders. This should be a fun conversation today. Well, I'm stoked to have you on, and in true manufacturing happy hour fashion, we're fortunate to be doing this interview late in the afternoon, so we both got some brews in front of us. So let's uh, let's start this off with the right ambiance. So let's say you and I are kicking it at Casey Bruco for this mm-hmm. conversation, and uh, you know we're talking shop after work, and someone walks up and they're like, you know, Andrew, I've heard of this new company of yours not really new but i've heard of this company of yours called called shelf aware how do you describe shelf aware to someone as if you're having a casual conversation with them at a bar brewery yeah that's a it's a great question it's kind of hard you know you run a tech company it's so it's software as a service uh and if you really want to boil it down for somebody at a bar i just tell them we make uh manufacturers inventory we just put eyes on our inventory so give the suppliers visibility transparency on a manufacturer's manufacturer's inventory location. So 
It's a, it's a wireless remote and now with COVID, a socially distanced vendor managed mm. inventory system. And not to mention a great play on words that really does a good job of describing exactly what you do. It's hot, you know, I'm I'm a big branding guy. So when you can get that mix that's clever and like spot on with what the company does, you can't beat that. Yeah, thanks. That's actually credit due to my coworker John, co-founder. Mm. He came up with that name in uh, another beer drinking session. So yeah, mm. we we do like the name. Yep. Well, I mean, speaking of speaking of great branding, the first thing I'd love to talk about is coming up in a family business, you know, O-Ring Sales and Services, also really good branding, directed <laughs> to the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was my dad, got to get credit to him. So the whole thing started, well, before I was born, a couple of years, 1982, uh, mm. my dad started this company. He was a sales guy, which is how a lot of companies start, and thought he could do it better. So started his own company. He was very straight to the point with his naming. Uh, got a great web address. It's oringsales.com. And nice. yeah, yeah, kind of an early innovator there. And he ran with this O ring company. So it's it's an industrial distributor, uh, specializes in O rings, seals, and gaskets. And it was my life for, well, really till just like a couple years ago. It was all I knew. Uh, grew up in a family with three sisters, no brothers. So we had, we had four mm. kids in the, in the household. My mom, uh, my grandparents, you know, my dad's parents, they were very much a part of founding the company. So it's about as organic uh, bootstraps as you can get. Everybody mm -hmm. was involved. I used to, uh, you know, come in and help do inventory all the time. Count parts, uh, ship, inspect stuff, clean the bathrooms, mow the lawn. I mean, wh whatever my dad wanted me to do. He was a big proponent of child labor. So <laughs> one, one way to put it, I mean, what was, I mean, just first question, what was it like growing up in that environment? Did you kind of always know you were getting into the family business? Was that what you wanted to do? No, no, not at all. I, I actually decided to come work for my dad as a career, you know, late in my high school life. So, hmm. uh, freshman, sophomore year in high school, I was thinking I'm going to go be an eye doctor. I really wanted to be an optometrist. I have terrible eyes and I don't know, enjoyed the experience, thought those guys made good money, and then found out that you have to go to like eight years of college and said, ah, maybe, maybe, <laughs> my, maybe my dad's got it pretty good. So I started to look at what yeah, my yeah. dad did. Um, it's interesting because, you know, by that time he had been going in the business for 15 years. And I think the first couple years of any business are by far the toughest. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so in high school, I was analyzing my dad's career at a point in time where he had gotten it off the ground. It wasn't just like, uh, you know, just every day by day was just trying to survive. He was at that point growing and thriving. So he could step away. He had a little bit more freedom. Um, and I thought, I, I think I, I want to jump in with him. So I surprised him at like a family get together. He was actually introducing me to his buddies saying, you know, my son's going to go be an eye doctor. And I said, actually, I'm going to come work for you. And nice. nice. Yeah. I just dropped it on him in a party. So, he uh, he made me go get a college education. So I got an accounting degree, got out of college, came and worked for my dad. And then uh, one thing I never expected is all three of my sisters married fairly entrepreneurial guys. And oh. these guys uh, joined the family business kind of one after another over the span of like six, six years, seven years. Really? All three of them? Yes, all three of them. That's pretty it's rad. It is really rad. It's a very unique scenario. You won't find it very often. Uh, I mean, you'll hear like biological siblings 
in a family business, but the brother-in-laws, uh, yeah, we all work together and we got, you could say we are really blessed or we got really mm -hmm. lucky because mm -hmm. we're all very, very different. Like from a personality standpoint, from a passions standpoint, interest standpoint. So, uh, we, we tend to not have a lot of conflicts. We kind of stay in our lane and mm. pursue our own passions in the business. Uh, it works well, it has worked really well. Well, I mean, we we actually haven't talked to anyone about family business on this show before. After 30 episodes, like you're the first where this conversation is coming up. So, I mean, maybe getting a little vulnerable. I mean, you mentioned it. You don't have lots of conflict, but, you know, you can't leave work at work with a family business. Like, that's just the nature of it. How do you how do you overcome those challenges in a business like that? Well, um, <laughs> I, th I think at some level you just embrace it. So, I mean, you know, it's okay. going to go home with you to Christmas and Thanksgiving and you just mm -hmm. tell, um, in our case, the wives to just get over it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's our livelihood. It's our passion our interests, our hobby, uh, everything like rides on it. So if we're going to have a conversation at Thanksgiving about something business, they just need to, you know, take a deep breath. And we, we try our best not to, you know, bring all of the stress home. That was something my dad was, was really bad about. He had nobody mm. to share the burdens with. And so he'd, he'd come home, uh, as an entrepreneur and a founder of a company, he had no partner. So it was a sole proprietorship, just him and my mom. Mm -hmm. So he'd come home at dinner and I mean, I'll, I'll, this is the tough years, kind of the early years. And mm -hmm. he'd just go off and yell and scream. I mean, tons of stress and had nobody to really drop it on. And he had no, he didn't have a lot of like close guy friends at that time either. Cause he was just working mm -hmm. just nonstop. I think that's the brutal nature of like entrepreneurship. Very few people talk about, um, mm. cause it's, it's ugly. Um, but anyway, now with my brother-in-laws, we, we tend to air most of it out amongst ourselves. And so our wives and our families really don't get the, uh, they don't, they don't have to see the nasty side of it. It's, it's a convenient fact of having like partners in a company that you can flesh stuff out with in a healthy way before you take it home. So is that, would you say that's the advice you'd have to other as aspiring entrepreneurs or current entrepreneurs out there? Because you don't have a lot of spots to vent. There are only so many people that kind of understand your issues. Um, what advice would you have to the folks out there that are trying to figure out how to manage that on their own that are on the entrepreneur side of our audience? Yeah, a ton of advice. But just to stick to this one point, uh, kind of the same vein here, if, if you're going to open a sole proprietorship, do it all by yourself, you know, like my dad did which is fairly common. You need to have a mm -hmm. really good support system. People that aren't going mm. to uh, judge you and, and also hopefully have some experience. So other local uh, business people uh, that are in parallel industries that you could bounce ideas or frustrations off of would be a huge help. There's also in recent years uh, been a big, you've seen a, a big blossoming of these peer to peer groups. Uh, Vistage mm -hmm. is the one that comes to mind for me, but it's basically like CEOs or founders or company leaders or managers that are all in this peer group, like a small group. They get together on a regular basis and share frustrations, successes, ask for advice, thought leadership stuff. That's really, really important. If you just try and like trudge along alone, you're just going to go through this vicious cycle of ups and downs and uh, it'll just tear you apart. It's a, uh, I mean, it's very emotional. It's a hard, hard road to plow. Oh, no doubt. And that's that's why I wanted to get some of your like straight up tactical advice for, from someone that's been through it, not only as a business owner yourself and a business leader, but also someone that grew up in that environment. So you've got to see it from a multi-generational standpoint, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting, like in all your, your podcasts, there's never been 
other family business aspects come up, but mm -hmm. it's not completely surprising because a lot of manufacturers, I mean, just in my lifetime watching my dad work with predominantly an OEM manufacturing customer base, mm -hmm. in the very early years, all of the manufacturing were based out of the Midwest and everybody around Kansas City here, they're mostly small businesses owned by sole proprietors, sometimes mm -hmm. partnerships, but it was just like one or two folks and they own yeah. the company. Now, M&A has just been on a tear for the last couple decades. Mm -hmm. Very few mom and pop manufacturers left. And that's just, you know, it's it's kind of sad in some respects because you, you made things a lot easier too back then. You could just, you know, who who made the decisions, where the buck stopped, and you could go talk to them and get a lot of things done quickly. Now everything's owned by corporations, holding groups, VCs. So just a different world. Yeah, and, and, and it's funny that you bring that up because I'm trying to go back through my memory bank right now to think if we have talked to people from family businesses where we just didn't talk about the family aspect before. But I think one one thing I can definitely say we've talked about is people that have come from, say, an entrepreneurial background, parents owned a business and someone goes on to start another business. And that's mm -hmm. kind of where my next question is going. You know, How does shelf aware then evolve out of O-ring services? What's the origin story there? It was a... Uh... It was a progression. I mean, it didn't happen. It wasn't like we had this aha moment. Hey, let's start another business. Um, you know, over time, we were uh, really embarking on this journey, starting way back in 2012, where my my brother-in-laws had all gotten plugged into the company, and we were starting to work on the business instead of in the business, and mm. finding you know comfort in our roles, our separate roles, and our staying and trying to stay in our own lanes. But at the same time, work collectively on innovations inside of our business to take it to a the next level. Mm -hmm. So we set these lofty goals, um, trying to triple the size of the business while keeping the headcount the same. A lot of those goals really revolved around technological innovations to try and gain efficiencies. So this path from 2012 to about 2016 is where Shelfware was created. Um, it wasn't our first brainchild. It was probably okay. like the sixth or seventh uh, internal innovation. But it was the first one that we could see a clear path to an external innovation that then spawned another business. So mm. to kind of double back on that, we we had come through the company and every department from front office to the back warehouse and, and, and made small innovations to make it more efficient. Something as simple as going paperless in the front office uh, and then in the, in the warehouse, maybe rearranging the inventory structure, um, consolidating uh, the bins or maybe putting in some new pieces of software to process uh, the quality control process quicker, whatever it was, um, little innovations. And then finally, Shelfware came about, and it was actually, like I said, the sixth or seventh innovation, but we we strung together several different techniques. My oldest brother had started to write software. Uh, I had started to dabble with some hardware on the RFID side of things. So it would be radio frequency identification with our IT guy, and all those pieces kind of came together from the software to the hardware side. And we decided to tackle our first innovation that wasn't inside of our business's four walls. So it was a mm. not a really planned progression, just a natural progression of, of, of us gaining confidence to take something that we're going to invent from a software and hardware standpoint and launch it in our customer's location and it's going to work and not, you know, give us a black eye, lose us a customer and like solely our reputation. So it took a while, but we finally got there and we really just set out to try and make our vendor managed inventories more efficient. Mm -hmm. and at, the, 
at the time we were running as a distributor, an industrial distributor, vendor managed inventories where we're sending people out in a very traditional sense with a clipboard or barcode scanner and running on hand inventories for large manufacturers with people in trucks. And it's pretty much everyone has done in the industry for a yeah, long time. Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. something that hasn't changed for you know, really, really, really long time. Uh, barcode scanners were kind of a attempt to get the consumer mm-hmm. to take some of the, the, the data entry on on their shoulders, you know, make them do it. It hasn't really worked. What usually happens now is the supplier goes in anyway with their own individuals, their own employees, and they scan yeah. stuff in and out. So we, we just wanted to come up with a system just to get our people back. Because, you know, we're, we're yeah. it was part of this bigger scheme to grow our company without growing the headcount. And and one of our mm-hmm. biggest labor uses was just sending people all over the, the metro area, uh, mm-hmm. driving around in trucks and taking inventories. And we thought, man, if we could just monitor these inventory levels at the consumer's facility with without people, we'd, you know, we'd love it. So that was, that was a simple, that was like what we wrote on the whiteboard is, do VMIs without people. That was our objective. And yeah. we put together the software and the hardware that eventually turned into Shelfware, which is a full suite of inventory management that's really intended to automate that B2B, business-to-business inventory piece. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's funny because it just clicked in my mind. One topic that we talk about on the show quite frequently is um, automation and whether it's a job creator or a job taker. And I think the data is there, and especially this audience realizes that it's a job creator. But yours is just a perfect example of that because you're talking about where you your people were gone doing the VMI type work. And if I'm hearing your story right, you were able to bring them back in as a result of having a solution like this. And they're able to do other type of work now. Is that correct or am I making too many assumptions here? Oh, no, that's that's 100% correct. We we wanted you know to, to grow the size of our company. We knew we had to do every aspect of order processing, customer service more efficiently. And, and the, the biggest like time suck, time waste was just people sitting in cars driving around to facilities. So if we could get those people back inside, we could process orders faster. We could service mm-hmm. customers better. We, we knew that we could grow the business. So I think to be like completely honest and blunt, from, from my opinion, in a lot of cases, automation starts as a job killer, mm-hmm. leads to job creator and then the net effect is a huge win for for either the adopter in this case a, a supplier or the consumer uh it just when you can drive automation beautifully it, it creates so much white space for you to find other value in mm-hmm. other in other sectors of your business other industries and it helps you have a competitive advantage so eventually you're going to grow your business i guess is what i'm saying the net effect is you'll grow your business you'll take on more jobs you'll process more material, more orders, uh, and you'll set yourself up for a competitive advantage in the marketplace uh, that'll lead to more jobs. Killer way to expand on that and really summarize that point. Uh, I'm glad that's what you're seeing from from your perspective and from your business. You know, you started talking about this as going through that story. Um, and we talked about this when we were first chatting before we did the interview. You talk about an incremental innovation strategy. And you've also specifically mentioned your Moneyball approach to mm-hmm. innovation. Mm-hmm. Can you di- can you dive into that? Maybe the first thing we need to do is describe what Moneyball is, so that context is there for folks that aren't familiar. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. I, I stole the term Moneyball from a really good movie. If you haven't seen it, it stars Brad Pitt. It's about the Oakland A's and their manager Billy Bean, who uh, embraced sabermetrics as a way to manage a baseball team. And I, I started using this uh, when 
just a couple of years ago, I kind of got tossed out onto the speaking and teaching circuit. So I've spoken at all kinds of trade shows and conferences, podcasts, and a lot of people want me to talk about, hey, how, how did you get there? How did you get from uh, idea, concept, just simple process automation stuff to a whole new company mm-hmm. You know that, that's changing the game and, and industry? And I hadn't really, before I was asked to speak, I hadn't really like sat down and coined any of these terms or really thought about the approach because it all really honestly happened so organically. But we, in a lot of respects, got lucky. We stumbled into this idea of incremental innovation. More research I did says, oh, wow, this is proven time and time again. Most mm-hmm. great ideas are not that aha moment you have in the shower. Most yeah. great ideas are a progression of other pretty good ideas that lead mm-hmm. to this like huge aha moment. And what, what we found as a small company, which I think would scale even to the largest companies, works really well for us is money ball in, a, in an innovation standpoint, in an investment mm-hmm. standpoint, is mm-hmm. the idea that you make small a series of small investments that equal a really large return. Or another way to say that would be you're going to look at innovation as a race, a marathon, mm-hmm. a long race with huge goals, but you're going to run your incremental races as a series of sprints to get to that big finish line. And mm. that was that was our innovation journey. We we outlined you know, our, our overall goal. Hey, we want to triple the size of the family business, but we want to mm-hmm. keep the headcount the same. We want to keep the footprint the same. So we want to keep overhead the same, basically. And we want to do that with process automation. So we outlined four or five innovation ideas out of the gate, ended up doing like three or four more uh, to get to our goal. But that was the small kind of incremental approach. Why I think it's really good is this, the smaller innovations, the small incremental innovations have mm-hmm. much less risk. So you're not swinging for the fences. You're not throwing tons of money and resources at these. You're throwing small amounts of money sometimes large amounts of time, mm-hmm. uh, but you're getting fairly large returns for the small amount of money, as opposed to going out and buying some massive wireless warehouse package or yeah. um, you know, so- something that's going to cost you six figures. Instead, you look at two or three uh, real pain points and try and solve those from an organic process internally with your own team, giving mm-hmm. them a huge budget of time and not a lot of money they'll figure it out. There's just so much yeah. tech available to them now that they can figure it out. So it's a money ball is an organic approach to innovation that is much more incremental. And you're trying to string together these, these, these sprints to win that long race, which is the marathon. Well, the multiple sports analogies definitely help because thinking <laughs> about it in terms of like a long distance race, but taking it in like little sprints along the way, I think is a great way to picture that now. And I would just want to make sure I got this right. You were talking about you wanted to triple the size of your business without having to increase headcount, correct? Yeah. yeah. And so I, I'm sure manufacturing leaders that are listening to this are thinking it's like, oh, I have a similar big goal or some big goal as well. What was the first step you took in that process or one of the first steps just so we can kind of take it from that big goal to like one of those first bite size incremental innovations? Right. Now, it depends on your, you know, your overall goal. In mm-hmm. our overall goal, uh, which was to increase revenue while keeping headcount the same and a mm-hmm. distributors approach are everything in a, in the distribution world revolves around people and processes uh, and mm-hmm. then creating competitive advantages to take more market share. So 
For us, it was a pure efficiency play. So our first step was a time study. So to find the real pain points, you know, where were we losing the most productivity? So it was probably one of our early steps. Another really early step was to put a team together. That's that's essential. So you need to pick a team, preferably a team of, I mean, they might even not know, they might not know they're innovators, but a team of people that have been with your company for a while, long time mm-hmm. that, that know your company in and out. Then you have to give those people on that team a lot of, like I said, budget, a, a huge budget of time to figure mm-hmm. out some of these problems. And you just set the team to figure out the problems. Don't give them a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, but give them a lot of time and give them a lot of leeway, a lot of sway or decision-making power to uh, to run with it. And and I think that's probably two of the first real keys to getting started with this approach. And, and- and and that seems really transferable to really solving most problems in a lot of ways. You know, look at, you know, do a time study, figure out the team. You know, I think one of the things that's most interesting about the way you phrased it is you're talking about budgeting time. I, I, I wonder how many people miss the fact that time is the most valuable resource in all of these things. They just immediately think of budget in terms of dollars. But I think... I've never heard, but like, well, I think I've heard budget the time before, but I just think the way you phrase that so succinct, succinctly and have done that a couple times really drives home that point. Yeah. For, for me, time just became, you know, um, it, I, I think it's because it's my own money too, in some mm-hmm. regards. Like I, I, so we, my brothers and I never set out huge budgets of money. Uh, and, and I think you can get away with that, especially now in this environment in, in the United States, because there are so many really, really sweet uh, pieces of hardware, <laughs> software, and a lot mm-hmm. of really talented people that are willing to work for for cheap uh, to help you along your innovation journey. And what I mean by talented people willing to work for cheap, I this wasn't like this twenty or thirty years ago, but there are mm-hmm. you know college students. Literally, our first mobile app was a college student that uh, we basically paid like beer and pizza money to this guy and he cranked this mobile app out in a weekend for us. Yeah. It saved us like, like I, I'm going to forget the numbers now, but it was several <laughs> hours a week in the yeah. warehouse and we, yeah. we paid him like uh, 2,500 bucks and he was like on cloud nine, cranked out this mobile app, launched it on the Android uh, app store. We brought it onto an Android device and used it as part of a wireless warehouse, kind of a organic wireless warehouse package we put together. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's just more resources available than there used to be, and it just takes time to figure it out, but it does not mm-hmm. take a ton of money. Talk about a great experience for that college student too. You know, I mean, that's what you're looking for at that early age. You know, money, especially when you're first starting out, like any amount that's more than like forty bucks seems like a good deal in a lot of ways. Not, yeah. I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm not advocating for anyone to not pay someone fair, fairly, but I'm just saying, like when when you're young, getting into the game, I mean, that's a you get a big win out of it because you get a new solution. That student gets experience they probably weren't going to get otherwise. I just think there are some awesome, awesome ways people can uh, can get into this industry and get some cool experience along. Oh the way. yeah, it was a great win win. And I mean, if you're in a manufacturing setting, it's also going to help you attract young talent to your company. Mm-hmm. There, there is a mm-hmm. talent talent gap that we're all trying to overcome in manufacturing. So, oh yeah, you know, enlisting the services of like a local community college to try and come up with some mobile apps for you. And and I keep referring to mobile apps. We've used a ton of mobile apps in our process. Uh, Shelfware utilizes mobile apps. 
The reason mm-hmm. is, is because this mobile device that's in your pocket, whether it's Android or Apple, is the mm-hmm. most powerful piece of technology that you interface with on the daily, and mm-hmm. everybody has one. So mm-hmm. we just think as an innovative group of guys that mobile apps are something that must be leveraged or at least considered for almost every innovation. No doubt. Absolutely. I mean, and I think the another important point you made, uh, going back to your time comment, is there's a lot of cool tech out there that you can buy. And a lot of people default to that too quickly before really putting the time into looking for the, you know, the incremental steps to their solution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're definitely getting into the latter half of the interview here. And we've been talking about shelf aware bits and pieces throughout this whole conversation. But, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about it and maybe put it in the context of a story for how it's worked for one of your clients in terms of like a, a success story. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the the easiest one to talk about is probably the uh, amazing manufacturer right here in Kansas City okay. uh, that, that let us really screw around with their inventory mm. early on. They were our beta. So they okay. were, uh, they took, a, they took a lot of trust in our abilities mm-hmm. to execute. And we, we basically phoned them up. We'd been supplying them parts for a long time on a, on a Venomander inventory uh, scheme, but it was a guy in a truck going over there twice a week, checking mm-hmm. their own inventory levels. And we, we called them up one day and said, Hey, uh, we've come up with this idea. It's a combination of software hardware. We think we can launch a small scanner, at your facility. It's going to report back to the internet and it's going to monitor the consumption of individual inventory items without your blue collar guys, the folks on the production level floor really having to do anything at all. So, so no barcode scanners, no individual scanning of items, no clipboards, uh, no procedures. They just grab what they need and they walk away. And we, the supplier, we're going to have complete visibility of mm-hmm. what they're walking away with. And then that will help us do two things. Number one, obviously, never stock you out of those items. But then number two, over time, we'll be able to keep the inventory dialed in to your production needs. Meaning if a uh, pandemic hit and, and the economy yeah. takes a dive, uh, we right. can, in a matter of weeks, we can see that your consumption levels are waning or are, are going down. And, and we can right-size your inventory. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And conversely, you know, if uh, the pandemic is over and we can get back to working again, then we can uh, ramp your inventory. The supplier can ramp your inventory back up based purely on near-time or real-time consumption data. And yeah. this manufacturer said, sure, sounds sweet. And let us, let us come into the facility. Uh, I think they had some confidence that if it all blew up, you know, we'd be back in there with a dude in a clipboard. And we'd, we'd figure it out for them. But the the real essence of what we solved for them, really, um, what, what started as a simple VMI solution turned into a transparent, visible inventory collaboration where mm. they saw inventory as an asset. We saw it as a supplier, as an asset. We both were able to leverage that asset to the best of its ability because we both had visibility, meaning the supplier, the consumer, in a yep. cloud-based application, both got to take part in this process. So the term vendor managed inventory, I think, in the past is, is really meant the supplier does everything and assumes mm-hmm. all liability, doesn't stock us out of product, but in turn has led to a whole bunch of issues like, well, because there's no visibility, transparency, or accountability, the supplier tends to just put a lot of crap on the shelf that, that we might never use. And yeah. 
it's inefficient and we still Mm -hmm. run out of stuff because they're not here all the time. So what started out as like a simple VMI solution turned into a whole B2B supply chain automation solution that grew over the course of uh, a year or two and, and subsequently led us to launch Shelfware as a B2B supply uh, solution. And it's really software as a service. So mm-hmm. we, we license a system to suppliers. The suppliers can install the system in a matter of hours or days if it's a really complex inventory. And they're up and running. Uh, the whole thing operates off of smart labels, which are... Uh, any size label, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's got readable information on it, so it looks like a normal label. But behind the label, there's this secret hidden uh, RFID chip. It's a microchip. Okay. Uh, it's got a little radio antenna. Um, boy, you use them all the time. You just don't know yeah. it. They're in, your, they're in your credit cards. They're in your key cards. Uh, they're in your mm. pets. You know, if you, if you tag your pet with an RFID <laughs> right. chip, yeah, yep. and you, you lose FIDO, you can find them. So it's a it's an old technology. It's been around a long time, but it's something that we found a couple of years ago. It's gotten really, 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 really cheap. So our labels, these smart labels, which allow us to track the movement of these products, now cost pennies. They used mm-hmm. to cost dollars. And so we're tracking O-rings. You know, at the start, mm-hmm. it was just O-rings. And we were tracking my family business product, which was penny parts. We were tracking them with penny tags and saving dollars in labor, you know, every transaction for for this big manufacturer. So since that early success, the cool part is was when we turned it into a, an inventory platform uh, and became an independent company, Shelfware licensed the technology to four other suppliers at this consumer's facility. So now it's it's grown. The beta is is loving it. You know, this manufacturer mm-hmm. of gearboxes. They're now tracking fasteners, uh packaging materials, um, some bearings, some hoses and hydraulic fittings, and of course seals and gaskets, all from four independent suppliers operating on the same platform, servicing them with a high level of engineering support, uh, R&D, all of that sweet stuff you get from niche suppliers, but all operating on one kind of omni-channel supply chain platform. So that's been the fun part. That's the great Mm -hmm. story to tell. Um, yeah, it's really to see these large manufacturing consumers be able to offload an extremely complex, highly engineered supply chain of, of small parts that are very vital to their manufacturing process, offload that to a, a single platform that, that allows mm-hmm. them to plug in suppliers of their choice, you know, who have other strategic benefits into this single platform. It's, it's slick. And that's been the most rewarding part of this whole, this whole uh, adventure. Well, just a ton of great things there. You know, I, I love going back to that transparency, that real-time example. And it's now, I think the biggest trend I'm seeing in manufacturing is it's shared responsibility in a good way now. It's not just on one person. It's not just on the vendor anymore for vendor-managed inventory. It's kind of like both parties can work together more yeah. effectively. And it's not putting extra labor on you know the the receiving end of this it's just they're getting the benefit of seeing what's going on seeing what's happening in real time like you were saying the pandemic is a great example where you can dial back or dial up what mm-hmm. someone needs really really quickly it's just it, it's a perfect example of digital transformation in the yeah. manufacturing industry yeah so it's 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 this beautiful idea of shared data collaboration mm-hmm. through data analytics and, and putting it in the cloud. And and there's just a lot of different pieces outside of Shelfware's control that had to 
fall into place, you know, for this mm -hmm. to become a reality and, and come out of the world of theory. Uh, and it's exciting to me. It's, it's something I think manufacturers don't appreciate is how, how much progress other industries have made in the, in the tech space. And, mm -hmm. and honestly, with the resurgence, possible resurgence of U.S. manufacturing, there's, there's been a lot of buzz in the last year or two about uh, reshoring, nearshoring of supply yep. chains. And, you know, again, COVID and the pandemic mm -hmm. has just put that in the spotlight. So comes up in almost every episode now. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it <laughs> yeah. does. It's exciting, man. It's exciting to think of like yeah. investment, you know, coming back into U.S. manufacturing for all mm -hmm. of us really get our hands dirty and messy and work mm -hmm. long days and long nights, you know, to reshore some of these vital supply chains back to U.S. Uh, manufacturers. That that's that's super exciting to me. Well, hey, great stories today. As as we get to the end of our conversation, uh, before uh, before we wrap up, I got to ask: Is there anything you wish I would have asked that I haven't asked you yet? Uh, no. I mean, I think I think we covered it. And if we didn't, I mean, hopefully the listeners uh they speak up and and we can come back and and dive into another topic, you know, mm -hmm. more in depth on a, on a subsequent episode. I think if there's if there's anything left unsaid, I have I kind of jotted down three three ideas for mm -hmm. ad advice, you know, for manufacturers. Um Ooh, cons considering <laughs> yeah, considering considering the current situation we all find ourselves in. Uh, yeah. number number one. From a, this is from a again, a young tech entrepreneur's standpoint. So take all these with a grain of salt. But number one, in this really quickly changing environment. I think a lot of manufacturers should throw out all of their experience requirements when they're hiring new folks for their mm. company. Those experience, you know, requirements, I think really hold them back from getting some super talented young folks who have no predisposition. They're not jaded. They have no mm -hmm. misconception, preconception about what manufacturing should look like in 2020 or 2021. And I think onboarding those folks to your organization now, it's going to help you pivot quickly uh, in 2021 and 2022. So that'd be my, my first tip. Second tip, I think manufacturers, I mean, growing up in this industry and in industrial manufacturing, especially, we tend to take ourselves a little too seriously. I mean, we, we do make products that, that put people, you know, in the sky and on the road and in heavy equipment. So it's, it's serious, but we have to have fun in our workplace, we have to take some risks and we have to be willing to get messy uh, or we'll never take that next step in innovation and we'll never attract that talent we need. And there's a huge talent gap in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. We'll never attract that talent to our workplace if we don't have some fun and take some risks. That's number two. Number three, and this is getting a little more in the weeds, but from a software standpoint, I just think manufacturers need to quit looking to the big software brand names and buying their really large, all-encompassing, uh, broad software suites and thinking that's going to solve all their problems. And they need to start mm -hmm. thinking a lot more about an organic approach to software and technological innovation in their workplace or at a third-party approach. I mean, they can either make it or buy it, but I think you can make or buy little pieces of software that'll fix different portions of your business. And more than ever before, those can be combined into mm -hmm. a kind of symbiotic solution. So I'm not sure you need the MRP or the ERP. I think quickly is approaching the day when manufacturers can leverage independent individual pieces of software 
but yet still see the cohesive benefits from all of them playing nicely together. And that's, that's mm-hmm. really due to the maturity of the cloud environment uh, that we're all working mm-hmm. in, in the software space. So those would be my, my top three takeaways, my tips, my pieces of advice for manufacturers, for your listeners. Uh, and I'd be happy, you know, subsequent episodes, we can drill in deeper with those that people scream and cry uh, about wanting more. I dig it. Those are three great actionable tips. You know, I love that last one uh, in particular. It goes back to your incremental innovation standpoint, you know, not trying to bite off the whole thing with one software solution. And then mm-hmm. you said it, addressing the talent gap, both of those first two when it comes to not taking yourself too seriously, making manufacturing cool, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and you know, throwing those requirements out the door. Experience is certainly worth something, but you got to get that new talent in. Um, and you know, there's, there's no way you can have five years of experience from someone coming right out of college. That's just the Mm -hmm. reality of it. And sometimes I feel like that's the expectation. (laughs) Yeah, I do too. Well, Hey, Andrew, this has been an excellent conversation. Where can folks go to find out more about shelf aware? Well, we have a website, but since we're a small company and it's incredibly expensive (laughs) to put a great website up, I'm currently managing the website and I'm not great at that. So I would, you can go to shelfwarebmi.com. Uh, or what I think the best place for you to learn more about what we do, what I do, is go to YouTube and mm. go to our YouTube channel. Uh, so search Shelf Aware, all one word, Shelf Aware on YouTube. You'll find our YouTube channel. There's always fresh content on there. It's video. It's short. It's sweet. It's to the point. You'll understand Shelfware, and you'll also get some of our uh, musings, kind of industry mm. musings and hot takes on where we see the industry going. So that would be the place to start. Uh, if you're interested in hearing more from me in a trade association meeting or a speaking engagement, uh, you guys can find me from a personal standpoint on LinkedIn. That's Andrew Johnson, Supply Chain Innovator. Type all that into LinkedIn. You will find me because it it is it's this is a funny side note. My first name is Andrew Johnson on LinkedIn. My last name is Supply Chain Innovator. Because Andrew Johnson, there's like eight billion of me on on LinkedIn. It's just there's incredible. only so much you can do. There's only so much you can do. But yeah. you found a great solution that plays even better into your brand, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. You gotta, you know, take what you're given. So I got a very common name. So you gotta work around that. That would be well, probably the best places to find me in Shelfware. I dig it. Well, for everyone listening, for all of those resources that Andrew just mentioned, you can capture them all in the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And in the meantime, Andrew, next time we have this conversation, it's certainly going to be over beers or over barbecue in Kansas City. I Agreed. feel like that's a must. Agreed. Barbecue on me. Awesome. Well, I've had a lot of fun with this conversation today. Hope everyone listening has as well. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. We'll catch you back here on Manufacturing Happy Hour real soon. Cheers, Andrew. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening. And my gosh, do I need to get back to Kansas City. It's been ages since I've had their barbecue. And obviously also to link up with Andrew and and have a follow-up conversation in person. But I got barbecue on the mind right now. I'm recording this around lunchtime. I am hungry. Speaking of lunch, speaking of barbecue, for all the resources mentioned in today's episode, including the barbecue recommendations, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 28 to access those as well as learn how to work with shelf aware. 
Great conversation with Andrew today. I hope you enjoyed it as well. As always, we love getting your feedback over at iTunes where you can leave a rating and review. Just head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes to go about writing a review that can be as short as two sentences and a rating that is preferably five stars. And finally, I'd love to get some feedback from you guys. I know I just mentioned the rating and reviews, but tweet at me on Twitter. Uh, handle is MFG Happy Hour. If there are topics to dive further into in the future, I have a feeling we'll be bringing Andrew back on at some point. But uh, in the meantime, just hit us up online. Let us know what you think. And that's it for this week, folks. More great episodes are in the pipeline. So we will see you back here real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.